Nothing coming up till next month. Wow. Of course, next month is only a little over a week away, so don't get too excited over it. Uh, homework three I gave out previously. That is due on the 1st of November, so that would be next Thursday. Um, we'll be through all of that. We should be through all that material in plenty of time. I expect to have all of it finished up by Tuesday for you. And in fact, the first 10 questions we should be done with if not today, by the beginning of the day, Thursday, I will be through most of the material for the first 10 questions on it. So again, don't hold those off till the night before, uh, especially if you like to do things on Halloween, because it, that would be the night before they're due. Um, but that's, that will be available there. Uh, the other thing is the solar observations. I'll take a look at them for the third time. Um, the following week, which would be November 6th, so just as before, submit your data sheet. I'm looking for one new successful observation at that point. Again, if you've only turned in one each time, you're going to be behind. I'm looking for 10. 10 is full credit. 10, 10 spaced out as described in the thing would be full credit. So if you've only turned in, if this, you're turning in just your third one here, you're not going to be able to get full credit. Don't, don't worry about that. It's not going to destroy you because the observations are only a portion of the grade. There's a project and a write-up and some stuff that we'll do in class that is a bigger portion. But because of the way I have the requirements as to how they have to be spaced out, if this is only your third one here, you're not going to be able to get 10 that are spaced out properly. If you get six or seven, you'll lose a couple points out of, the, out of the 30. It's not going to destroy your grade on the project. So I don't want you to stress out that I've only got eight or nine observations. You might lose, if you have eight observations, you might lose three points on it, is usually what I do. Yeah? Okay, since you're only looking for the third one, if we have more than that, do we need to send another one? Or can you need to send me everything that you've made to this point. Okay. So I always want to see everything that you've made. What that means is I've collected everything that you've gotten to this point, so I don't want to see like magically appearing observations from September that you didn't turn in. At the, I, I've had people do that and make up to try to get to 10. Don't, don't do that and cheat and make up observations. I mean, I've caught people, I had to give them zeros on the whole project, which does crush your grade for you know, making fake data on it. You know, it's a couple points. It's not going to kill your grade if you only turn in eight or nine. I've had people make none who couldn't make any observations. They do fine on the project. They might not get an A on the project. They might get a B or something. But you can actually do a fine grade on the project even if you only turn in a couple observations or even none. Because there is a lot more to the project than just making the, the observations is to get you to actually collect some data, which is part of a science course. So that's why I want you to make the observations. But don't stress over, oh, I've only got eight of them. You might lose a couple points on the data portion of it. You can still do the write-up. You can still do the graphs, the calculations. That's, a, that's an in-class lab, so don't worry about that either. We do that as a group, essentially. I'll go through, show you how to do them. And then the rest of the class will be working on them. I'll come around, make sure you're getting all the calculations right. Essentially, when we do that lab, it's a whole day lab instead of just a one and a half a class lab. And I want you to leave with it with your calculations and your graphs all done and ready to go so you don't even have to worry about that. You have me check them. You know you've got perfect scores on those for the project. So the whole idea of that is not for you to stress over it, but to have done it. So if you have five, five If you turned in five observations, I'm sorry? You should, be, you should be right on track. If you've got one or two, you're behind. If you've got eight or nine, you're doing really well. 
But if you've got five, four, five, or six, you still are good if you can get another couple, another one this week, something next week, and then in November. The project is not due till the end of November, so you've got time to get four in November. But I only count four per month. It's my idea of getting you to spread them out and not making, oh, well, it's November, let me make my 10 observations. Well, that's why I wanted to know how many But it is still better to get more. I'd rather see more if you can only get them in, than get them in November. You won't get full credit, but you'll get better than zero. So the more you can get, the better. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to hurt your grade to have extra ones. It might not give you full credit. If someone makes 10 observations in November, they're not going to get full credit for the observations because that doesn't meet the criteria. But that's still better than turning in just one observation. Yes? If I make two observations two days in a row, is that going to happen at all? It does not matter. I don't count them as individual. They're supposed to be two days apart, at least. So like make one the first, skip two days, make the one the fourth. So skip, this, so skip two days. However, if you do that and those, those don't count as your 10 observations, like if you turned in 12 observations but some of them are just next side by side, that's fine. So if you'd, lose, you'd get a small deduction if like, they have to count as part of your 10. Small amount. Yeah. I'm sorry? You can do three observations in a week. I'm sorry? They would count. As long as there's two days in between each one. So you've made one on the first and then the fourth and then the seventh. Yeah. But if there are some closer, again, it's not going to hurt you. I've had people turn in 20 observations. Some people really go to town on it. And if some of them are closer together, that's fine. Because I'm looking for 10 that are separated as I described in there. So you're not going to get full credit. If you're just getting started, you won't get full credit. But you can still get a good chunk of the credit for the observations. And again, there's a lot more to the project than the observations total, including what I'm collecting here, are worth 30 points out of 160. So there's still 130 other points that you can get. So even if you get you know, 20 out of 30 on the observations, you can still do fine on the project. So I don't want you to stress that it's going to crush you if, I've only got, if I'm missing a few observations. Some of them are too close together. I may, had to make six in one month because it was too busy or whatever. That's fine. You can still do just fine for the project. And there will be a lab coming up probably mid-November, a little after that. Where I will go through again all of the other stuff that you need for the project. Yes. How many articles are we going to have? Three. There are three. The last one. And I'll and I'll mention. Give me give me a second to get down there, and I'll mention a little more. That's okay. That's okay. This is the last one. Yes. Um, then we have the exam coming up. If we're good on solar observation, again, I'll be talking more about that after. I don't want to cut off discussion on it if there is any though. Okay. So exam coming up the following week. Uh, we should be well done with the material and actually working into chapter 23 and 24 by then. Uh, but that is going to be the 8th of November. And same style and format. The review quizzes, I'm getting those up now. Actually the first one is now up and ready to go if you want to experiment with that which covers chapters 17 through 19. The other two, I have the question banks all loaded up into D2L. I just haven't finalized them into the actual quiz format. I'll do that once after class. So by the, by the end of this morning, uh, you'll have all three of those will be available for you to experiment with. Again, they're the same test bank that uses the, uh, that I use to make up the exams. So the questions that you see on the review quizzes will give you some uh, practice on the exams. And you can also get you know, up to a couple points of extra credit, up to three points of extra credit just for doing them. Tenth of a point per question you get right on your last attempt. 
So again, it's worth doing, even if just throwing in, even if you just go throwing random answers in there, you might get a couple ten, you might get a point or two out of the three of them, just for having done them. So it does certainly doesn't hurt, you know, an extra point towards your final grade will not hurt you in the long run. Then jumping into the article reviews, this is the last article review. If you've done the first two, you do not have to do the third one if you're happy with your grades. Um, the second one I've graded, the grades will be up and I'll have those back to you next time so you can decide. So if you missed one, obviously you missed one or two, do the third one because it'll drop a zero. If you did well on them, if you got 35, or sorry, four, sorry, 50 points, 45, 46, 47 on both of them, it's probably not worth your time to do the third one because say your lowest grade was a 45 out of 50. Well, you do this one and get a 50, you go up five points. Maybe that'll make the difference in the end. But is it worth your time right now to do that for five points? Is the most you're going to get out of it? So I recommend if you have grades in the low, even the lower 40s, it's probably not worth your time to read the article, do the write-up, and then you have to do better, obviously, or it will still end up being dropped. So if you've done well, turned in the first two, you can just skip that one. Yes, I'll give you a zero on it, and then I'll set it up to drop, and the zero will go away so it won't count towards your final grade. If you've missed one, definitely do this because then it means you have a zero right now which is skewing your grade down and when you do the third one and I drop one, your grade will shoot up. Do well on it. So it's up to you. It's completely up to you though. You know, if you want to take a chance that that couple points might make the difference in a letter grade at the end, you know, I can't tell you that it won't because I don't know what you're going to do on the project. I don't know what you're going to do on the final or anything else. So it won't hurt you to do the third one if you did the other two, but there are cases where it's not worth your time. Obviously, I don't know if that applies to anyone. If you've got a 50 on both of them, it's definitely don't do it because you can't, it can't do anything for you. Because if you get a 50 on all three, then I drop a 50. So it doesn't help your grade at all. So again, if you've done the first two, great. You can look at what your grades are, decide whether you want to bother doing the third one. If you skip one of the first two, as I know many did because you had other commitments come up, then definitely do the third one. Okay, questions? Then. We're good, good, good. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and jump to our picture for the day then. And we have, this is Hyperion. Hyperion, this is actually a Galaxy Proto Supercluster. So we haven't gotten to galaxies yet. We're getting there. Uh, we'll be finishing up stars over the next couple weeks. And then we'll be jumping out to our galaxy and then to other galaxies. This actually goes beyond galaxies. Uh, galaxies contain billions of stars. So stars like our sun and other types of stars that we've looked at. There's, you know, hundreds of, there can be hundreds of billions of them within each galaxy. Each galaxy groups into clusters. A small cluster, our galaxy is part of a small cluster which has about oh, 40 to 50 galaxies in it. Relatively small cluster. There are clusters that have thousands of galaxies in them. So galaxies group into clusters. Stars will group into clusters. And then into galaxies, galaxies will group into clusters. But we're not in clusters. We're actually in what's called a super cluster meaning that it's a cluster of clusters of galaxies. So you take a number of these galaxy clusters together. So you could have one galaxy cluster here, one here, one here, one here. And they all group together into even larger scale structures. 
So the superclusters are some of the largest scales, largest structures that we see in the universe. This is a proto one because it's one that is in the process of forming. This is very far away in that it's about 12 billion light years away. Meaning that if you think about that, the light from this that we're studying right now left these galaxies before our solar system even formed. Long before our solar system formed, before our galaxy, our galaxy even formed. Our galaxy formed about 10 billion years ago. Our sun formed about 5 billion years ago. The light that's that we're seeing from these today had to leave them long before any of that happened. It ha this, this was looking back in time to about 2 billion years after the Big Bang as these clusters were just beginning to form. The white dots, not stars, actually galaxies. And only the brighter of the galaxies. Those are the very bright galaxies. The blue line here actually represents, uh, the blue shading is all of the other galaxies that are present, all the smaller galaxies. So I said a cluster could have thousands of galaxies. Well, you might tell me there's not thousands of galaxies there because I can sit there and count those pretty easily. Those are the largest galaxies. There are also a whole lot of small ones that are in this bluish haze that we can't, that are just too small, too far away, too faint to be able to resolve individually. We see the same thing with other galaxies. When we look at other galaxies, we can see their light, but we can't see the individual stars. We only see the glow from all of the stars put together. This is kind of what we're seeing here is the glow from all of these galaxies as the supercluster was forming. And as we come towards the end of November, we'll talk about these structures, you know, what kind of structures there are on the largest scale of the universe. All right, questions? All righty, well, we will go ahead and we had just, I'd just given you a brief start on chapter 20 last time, so we will finish up, get going there again. There we go. So I'm going to go back a little bit because I was just talking about hydrogen gas, but I wanted to kind of reemphasize one part of it. We talked about the bright hydrogen gas that we could see. That's the stuff that was glowing. Go back one more slide. That's things like the Orion Nebula where we can actually see the gas. That's a really small portion of it. The part of it that's actually illuminated is really tiny. Gives us lots of pretty pictures to look at, things like the Orion Nebula. But it's a very small amount of the total amount of interstellar gas that is out there. Most of the gas is just ordinary hydrogen. And hydrogen is completely clear, meaning that we can see right through it. So it can be sitting there, you know, just like our atmosphere. Our atmosphere is also clear, things like nitrogen and oxygen. I can see you, right? We can see through the atmosphere even though we know it's there in between. Well, the hydrogen gas is also there, and there are lots of interstellar clouds of uh, gas and dust, but those of gas aren't visible to us directly. Now, but we can see some of their effects. And we can see, for example, when light from a star passes through them and passes through that hydrogen gas, we will get absorption. So the hydrogen gas will absorb specific wavelengths corresponding to hydrogen. And we can then see those lines in the spectrum. We know what's, what the star should be giving us. And we can see extra lines in the spectrum. In fact, extra hydrogen lines that might be shifted as the star was, the star was moving, if the gas cloud is moving. 
we can see multiple sets of hydrogen lines telling us about all of these different clouds in between us. So we can use the lights from the stars to kind of map the interior, the regions in between us and that star. So that's one way we can detect it. So we're detecting it by the light that it's actually absorbing, even though the gas itself is completely invisible. So we cannot see that gas with visible light, but we can see its effects on the light from distant stars. The other thing that we can do, and the one I really wanted to just reemphasize, was it does emit radio radiation. So it does emit radio waves. That can be detected. So we can detect those, and those are primarily the emission of hydrogen at a wavelength of 21 centimeters. Right, most wavelengths I can't show you, 21 centimeters, you know, maybe something about like that. About rough wavelength of the that the hydrogen atom gives off. This is from what is called the spin flip transition. It's not the electrons moving between the energy levels. Those give us things like visible light, infrareds, ultraviolets, much higher energies. But when you have a hydrogen atom, you have a proton, and you have a neutron, and each of them has a spin associated with it. Well, they can either spin, they can have either up spins or down spins in terms of how they spin. You can think of that as spinning clockwise. If you look down, they're all spinning clockwise, or they're both spinning clockwise, or they're both spinning counterclockwise. And there's only two possibilities. You can either have them spinning in the same direction, either both up or both down, or you can have them spinning in opposite directions. One going up, one going down. One going clockwise, one going counterclockwise. That is the most stable form that we get. So that is the lowest energy, is if they're spinning in opposite directions. However, you can, as they bump around to each other, it doesn't take a whole lot of energy to cause the one to flip and get them going into a higher energy level. It doesn't like to be there and it flips right back, but when it does that, it actually will give off a wavelength of hydrogen at 21 centimeters. It's a very low energy. It doesn't take a lot to do that. This is just atoms bumping around against each other. And out in space, they will then do this, and then they'll flip back, and that will give off radio radiation. So those ra that radio, that, that hydrogen gas in the previous thing that we could not see visibly, we could not, that's completely invisible to us, we can see its effects through radio. We can detect it, and it glows in the radio. Remember, hydrogen is 90% of all atoms in the universe. So there is a lot of hydrogen gas there to be able to be detected. And radio astronomers use this to be able to map out the galaxy, map out the universe in radio waves. We can detect where the hydrogen gas is in the universe. And remember, that's most of what's there. It's the vast majority of it is all hydrogen. So if we figure out where the hydrogen is, we know where everything else is because that's 90% of the atoms in the universe. All right, so that's why I kind of finished up last time. I just wanted to go and review that because that is an important way that we are able to map the universe. So we had neutral hydrogen. We talked about the radio. We also can have really hot gas, extremely hot, not, not these cool gases, which would be the ones we were looking at before, essentially invisible to us, emitting only radio waves. But you can have, also have gas that has temperatures of millions of degrees. Typically, this is an example of a supernova explosion. 
And we'll talk about exactly what goes on in a supernova coming up in a couple of chapters at the end of the lives of stars. But it is part of the interstellar medium as well. When a, when a star explodes, it ejects that material out at really, really high speeds. And they go streaming out through space. But there are high speeds, high energies, high temperatures. Means they give off a lot of things like ultraviolet light, x-rays. So when you get up to millions of degrees, they're emitting a lot of x-rays. You can see them in the visible, which this is a visible image. But if you looked at x-rays, you'd have even more emission there because of their extremely high temperatures. So you can have cool gas. You can also have a really hot interstellar gas as well, which is seen through other methods. And again, we'll look at supernovae in a little more detail later on. We can also have even cooler areas than just the cool gas, which are darker regions, which are what we call the molecular clouds here. Typically, you can't get molecules forming out in space. A molecule, atoms combining together. Water is a molecule, right? Oxygen and hydrogen combined together in certain proportions makes a molecule. Carbon dioxide, carbon and two oxygens, carbon monoxide, carbon and one oxygen. So you can form those molecules here on Earth, but typically out in space, they're broken apart by ultraviolet light. You've got lots of ultraviolet light, high energies that is traveling through, and they'll get broken apart sitting out in space relatively easily. So they absorb a lot of that ultraviolet and break apart. But if you get a molecular cloud where things are a little denser, we can actually form relatively complicated molecules. We can find things like carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide out in space in the depths of these molecular clouds where they're shielded. So you've got a lot more material around that protects the material at the core of the cloud and allows it to build up more complicated molecules. In fact, in some of them, we can get not just you know, simple molecules, carbon dioxide, water are relatively simple, but you can get even bigger, more complicated molecules. Things with five, eight, ten atoms together if they're shielded enough from the ultraviolet radiation. So some of the examples of these, some of the things that you can get. See how those show up there. Um, ammonia, right? That's one we find there. That's one that's used for cleaners. Formaldehyde, um, acetic acid, vinegar, essentially you can find. Ethyl alcohols, glycols, benzenes, various different things that you can find out in space. That these will form in those great molecular clouds. So those are actually things that we find out in space. And some of these get to be quite a few atoms. What do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's 10 different atoms needed to make ethylene glycol, which is part of antifreeze. So it goes into an antifreeze. But it needs 10 different atoms together. That kind of thing can even form in some of these great molecular clouds. And we can detect those through their radio emissions. So gas is one component of the interstellar medium and is probably the biggest component. But as we, it's hard to see. You don't see it very well because a lot of it, the vast majority, is that clear hydrogen. The thing that we can see pretty well is the dust in the interstellar medium, even though it's only a small portion of that medium. It doesn't give off anything visible, but it blocks visible light. So when we look at things in visible light, 
You see all these stars scattered. Look at all those stars scattered around. And here's a big void where there's no stars. Well, that's not the case. It's actually that there are a lot of stars there. They're just not visible to us. So this is actually filled with stars. And if we could look through the dust, we'd actually see lots of stars behind there. But there's enough material in between us that we can't see it. Right? There's another classroom behind us, behind that wall. Right? We can't see the desks. We can't see the chairs. It's there, but we can't see it because that wall's in the way. If we could remove it, if we could look through the wall, use x-rays or something to be able to penetrate the wall, you'd be able to see what's in the next room, that way or this way. Same thing here. The dust, the stars are there. And I'll show you an image later on that shows, that shows some of those stars, that there's ways to actually see them. But, it's almost, but essentially it's invisible. It blocks out all of the light coming from behind it. Now there are some cases where we can see dust. So one of those is the example of what we call a reflection nebula. And a reflection nebula is when we have young stars that have formed. This is some of the leftover dust from their formation scattered around them. But they will, as, as their light goes out, it will be scattered by that dust. Those stars are primarily blue stars, giving off lots of blue light. And the dust scatters the blue light a lot better. It's much more effective at scattering blue light than it is at scattering red light. Same reason our sky is blue and sunsets are red. The red light comes straight through the atmosphere. The blue lights get scattered and comes from all over the place. Well, red light is traveling straight through the dust pretty much. But the blue light gets scattered all over the place. And then we can see that then it gets reflected here and we see this blue nebula around some of these young stars. So there's one way we can see the dust. But, but the dust is good at scattering the light, but it does block out most of the light here. And we get an image like I showed you before. Dust actually will do two things. It not only does it make the stars dimmer, harder to see, maybe impossible to see if there's enough dust, but it will also absorb the light primarily in the blue. So when you get towards the edges of things like this, you'll start to see some of these stars that you're just barely peeking through tend to look a little bit on the red side. Over here you'll get a big mixture of stars. The ones that you see, especially right in the edge that are inside, closer to inside this, all look very red. And in fact, if we look at longer wavelengths, if we look in the longer reds into the infrareds and take an image of this same part of the sky, we can actually start to see those stars through it. Can you tell the difference there? There you can see nothing. Same image. All we're doing is looking in the reds. And now you can start to see that there's a whole bunch of stars filling in there. We just couldn't see them through the dust. Infrared light, even longer wavelengths, are better at penetrating through the dust and gives us a way to look into the dust and see what's behind there. So now we can actually see what's going on behind there. We can actually see that dust. Infrared works really good for this. Radio waves, any really long wavelengths. The short wavelengths don't penetrate through the dust very well. So essentially, the dust does two things. It makes the stars look fainter than they otherwise would be. If they look fainter, then we're going to think they're further away. Right? If they look fainter than they really should be because the dust is absorbing them, if we don't know about the dust, 
we're going to think they're further away than they actually are because they're looking unusually faint. And they're also going to look redder than they otherwise would be. So it's going to change two things about them. It's going to make them look further away and it's going to make them look redder than they otherwise would. But we can see them. We can now, with infrared telescopes, actually look into some of these clusters and see what's going on. What is behind that dust cloud? A hundred years ago, no way to do that. You could not look through that dust. So what does the dust do? And again, I talked about this, but just to um, emphasize, starlight passing through the dust will do two things to the stars. It's going to make them appear fainter than they actually are. It's absorbing some of the light. Not all of it, but some of the light. And if you take something that's really bright, like looking at a, you know, a headlight or a flashlight through the fog, you're going to see less. It's going to look like you're getting less light there. And you're going to think something is further away than it really is because you're used to a certain level of brightness coming from, say, a headlight from a car coming at you through the fog. So you might think it's further away, especially if you're only seeing the lights out in the distance. So they're going to look fainter. We're going to think that they're further away because some of that light is absorbed. And they're going to look redder. The more dust that is present, the more this will happen. The more these two things will occur. So when we get just a little bit of dust, they'll look a little bit fainter. We might notice them looking a little bit redder, but we won't see a big change. When we have more and more dust, they can look incredibly red because all of the blue lights are gone. All the blue lights are removed. When you get even enough dust, you can absorb all of that and you can hardly see anything coming from the star or the star might be completely invisible. So what is this dust? Gas is a little bit easier. It's hydrogen gas, helium gas, carbon dioxide gas, things that we're used to. But what are the dust grains are something probably like this. This is an example from the textbook of, an, of what a dust grain might be. You can have a couple of different types of dust grains. You can have those that are sooty, carbon rich, which would have a carbon core. Or rich in silicon, rocky. You know, silicate rock. We have a lot of silicate rocks, so the core here could be made of a couple of different things. So this isn't really dust as we're used to thinking about dust here on Earth, right? If you dust something at home, this isn't what the kind of things that you're generally uh, cleaning. But you can get you know sand-like particles that are silicon rich. You can get carbon-like cores that are uh, more sooty. Within the molecular clouds, they start to build up to smaller, still microscopic, well, still microscopic because if you look how big the sizes are, they're really tiny. But you can think of them as, you know, on a very microscopic scale, as a little bit of a planet almost. That we have a core of denser materials, maybe carbon, maybe silicon, and you have a mantle around it of icy material. Icy can be water ice, it can be methane ice, it can be ammonia ice. Those are the three most common ones that we see out in space. So while we see that in terms of size, we're talking about things that are billionths of a meter in size, that are size of wavelengths of light. That's how tiny they are. So they're, just, they're not just microscopic, they're submicroscopic. But they're little, but they're big enough, even these tiny grains, when you have enough of them out there, that's enough to block out the light from things behind it. 
So much smaller than a dust particle that you'd get at, you'd get at home, right? This kind of dust you'd want. It's so tiny you don't even have you wouldn't even notice that it's there. But it's made and it's made up of different materials in terms of having a core, uh, either silicon or carbon, and then having a mantle in either case that's very icy. But still very, very small materials. But this is what we see within those molecular clouds. This is what those dust grains are actually composed of. So finishing up here, again, to summarize, uh, we had two parts to the interstellar medium. We had the gas and the dust. Vast majority of the interstellar medium is all uh, gas, but most of it is invisible to us. Uh, the dust, we can see some of the gas that's illuminated. But that's a small portion. We can see the effects of some of the dust. So gas, we can see some of that as ionized hydrogen regions. Those are things like the Orion Nebula that I showed you, where the gas actually is heated up to glow, or through a supernova remnant, things like that, where the, ice, where the, where the gas is actually heated up to glow. Or we can see it in radio waves for the cool gas. We can actually see that. Dust actually blocks the light. It makes things appear fainter and redder than they would otherwise. So what we're going to look at coming up in the next, I have a couple other things to look at for this chapter, but we're going to see in the next chapter, in chapter 21, a little later today, how we use that, how this material is actually what makes up stars and begins star formation from these clouds of gas and dust out in space. But there's a couple of other things that, the chap that this chapter covers first before we go back to that. So we're going to take a look at those first. And the first thing we want to look at from some of this are what we call cosmic rays. Cosmic rays have been known for over 100 years. Victor Hess is the one who discovered them. Right? We're, just, we're just at the very beginnings of airplanes. Couldn't get airplanes very high into the atmosphere at this point, but you could get balloons. So balloons were taken up to be able to detect what we found as cosmic rays from space. Cosmic rays are not light rays. These are one of those things that are not a part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So they're not x-rays, gamma rays. Even though we call them cosmic rays, they have nothing to do with x-rays or gamma rays or ultraviolet or infrared or radio radiation. These are actually particles from space. So not photons of light, but actual particles. And they're actually made up of pretty much the same stuff as the interstellar material that we look at. They're mostly hydrogen. 90% of them are hydrogen nuclei, just the proton, traveling at velocities close to the speed of light. You get about 9% helium and heavier nuclei, and a small amount of electrons and positrons traveling through space. The image here is of one of the balloons getting set up to be able to go up and, dete and detect these cosmic rays, to be able to look at them and detect these from space. So we were finding that, they're, that they are occurring, but we're protected from that for the most part here on Earth. Now our atmosphere, like it protects us from things like x-rays and gamma rays, it protects us from cosmic rays too. Because protons coming and striking at the speed of light, or very close to it, would be very damaging to us. So you have to be up high in the atmosphere where the atmosphere is significantly thinner. And we're not talking you know, mountaintop high. We're talking up in the upper limits of the atmosphere in order to be able to detect these. So what do we see for the abundances of these? Again, the composition is the same, typically as to what we see for 
what we see for stars, 90% hydrogen, 10% helium, and scatterings of everything else. The difference that we see is certain elements that are relatively rare in stars, in other places. These are, I don't have a periodic table in here, but hydrogen and helium are the two lightest elements. That's what makes up most of the universe. Lithium, beryllium, and boron are the next three elements, but they're very rare. Their, their abundances are much, much smaller than things that come after them. Things like carbon, right? We know carbon, we're made up of carbon, nitrogen in the air we breathe, oxygen in the air we breathe. The next few elements are much more common than them. And that's because this is one of the ways that they are actually formed. They are not formed in stars the way other elements are. We kind of jump over that when we, when we go through and talk about how the stars form elements. These get jumped over. So they don't form within stars. They have to form someplace else because we do see them. And they form through cosmic ray collisions. So that's how we actually get some of these lighter elements, why they exist is because they're formed in cosmic rays. Um, for most part for us, cosmic rays are blocked by the Earth's atmosphere. We don't have to worry about them. But we can study them from the ground to some extent as well. If you remember, I showed you a telescope to look at gamma rays from space. I think one of our pictures from last week or the week before, we saw a telescope on the ground to look for, our, look for gamma rays because they would strike the upper atmosphere and we could detect the showers of particles that they created. We couldn't detect them directly. We can do the same thing for cosmic rays. So they will strike something in the upper Earth's atmosphere and we'll get a shower of particles that will come down and we can detect those to learn something about the cosmic rays as well. So there are some things we can do to learn about their origins, where they're coming from. And we've used that over time to be able to get an idea of where the cosmic rays come from. So we can detect now and determine you know, where do these cosmic rays come from. There's a few that are produced by the sun. It's a relatively small proportion of them. But some of them are particles from the sun that stream in and we can detect those as they come around. Most of them get buffered around the Earth by our magnetic field. But there are some energetic particles that come from the sun. Relatively small proportion of the cosmic rays. Most of them come from outside the solar system. And in fact, outside our solar system, but inside our galaxy. The problem is that they're very hard to track. Unlike light, light travels for the most part in a nice straight line. So when it leaves a star, it zooms right to us in a straight line. Particles don't do that. Particles don't move in straight lines because they have electrical charges. Right? A proton is a positive charge. If it comes near a magnetic field from a star, from a planet as it's traveling, that can deflect its orbit. Maybe not much, especially if it doesn't come really close to it. Overall galaxy has a magnetic field which can change again their position. So these things will weave around a little bit, meaning that we see it coming from one direction Right, the last direction it had, but it might have come from something completely different. So unlike light where we can sit there and look and say, hey, there's the star that these things came from, there's the galaxy that these things came from, it's, that's not, not easy to do with cosmic rays because they constantly change their path. They do travel at really high speeds, not quite as fast as light because they are actual particles, so they can't travel at the speed of light like photons of light. 
but they do travel at very high speeds, 90% of the speed of light, you know, well beyond anything we can possibly do. Way, way beyond anything we can possibly do. You know, we're talking you know, tenths to a hundredth of a percent of the speed of light for speeds, things that we send out uh, fast. Here we're talking 90% of the speed of light. But we do say that most of them, from what we can tell, come from within our galaxy. So not within our solar system, just a few from the sun, but most of them do come from within our galaxy. Probably from things, as I showed you, supernova explosions. I showed you a picture of one. You could see all the filaments, all the glowing area, very high temperature gas. Well, particles would have, been, would have come out in that too. So very high energy particles would stream out from that supernova. And as supernovae occur over our galaxy, right, our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across, so a supernova on the other side of our galaxy that went off 100,000 years ago, we'd just be getting particles from it. And if they're only traveling 90% of the speed of light, they'll take a little longer. They'll take an extra you know, 10 or 15,000 years to get here. So we can be seeing those particles from supernovae that went off tens, hundreds of thousands of years ago, still traveling to us today. We think that the highest energy ones actually come from other galaxies. But from what we can tell right now, most of the cosmic rays are probably supernovae within our galaxy. View from the sun, really, really high energy ones, those traveling even faster come from other galaxies. But again, they take even longer to get here. If galaxies like the ones we looked at in our picture that are 12 billion light years away, these things might not even have gotten here yet. If a supernova went off in, that, in there and something's traveling at 90% of the speed of light, right, they're lagging behind the light so the light gets here and they still may take another billion or two billion years to get to us. Even though they're traveling at a, that, that fast, that high of a speed. So there's some of the highest energy ones we still may not have been able to detect yet. How we go about detecting them, this is an example of the uh, Veritas array that is used to detect the gamma rays produced when the cosmic rays strike the upper atmosphere. So the atmosphere blocks out a lot of this material, but again, we like to set these down on Earth whenever it's possible. Easy for repair, easy for monitoring, everything else is a lot closer to Earth, so when we can detect and we can also build bigger things on Earth than we can put up into space. So we have these that can detect rays and light rays and gamma rays and see showers of particles that are produced when one cosmic ray strikes the upper atmosphere. And as with the original detection, we can also use balloons. So get something up high, up above most of the atmosphere to be able to detect that. Um, in order to send that, you can, little detectors can just be special plastic sheets that will then detect. The cosmic rays will strike the plastic sheets and form strings of particles within them and then you can just bring it back and detect it and study it later in the laboratory. So you can see something about these cosmic rays and you can learn about their energies and their origins uh, from things like this. So finishing up cosmic rays, what do we have here? Well. What are they? They're really, they're not electromagnetic. So they're completely different than the other types of things that we use to study astronomy. We use everything else as light, right? Whether it's visible light or x-rays or gamma rays, they all have the same properties. These are different. These are actually particles, nuclei of atoms that are traveling through space at very, very high speeds. Problem with detecting them is unlike light waves, 
they are charged. They have electrical charges, meaning that magnetic fields will change their paths. So we don't know, we can't detect exactly where they came from and be able to trace them back necessarily to their point of origin. That's why I said probably formed by supernovae, but I can't trace them back to, oh, here's a bunch coming from this supernova. Because those coming out at different directions you know, come to us from all different, didn't seem to come from all different directions in space because their original paths have been deviated. So we think most of them come from supernova explosions. We can get a better estimate that they come from our galaxy and that's the most energetic thing that we can think of that would give us things like this. All right, questions. All right, last section of this chapter then. Um, how does the interstellar medium change? This is a little bit about the recycling of material in the interstellar medium. So things are changing continually. The material that we see today gets formed into stars. Some of it gets expelled back out into space and forms the next generation of stars. So what we see in a star today in our sun, in the planets around the sun, was once part of another star billions of years ago. In fact, anything heavier than hydrogen or helium that we see had to have gone through stars in order to have formed. Right? I told you some of those light elements, but you're not made up of a lot of lithium, beryllium, or boron. We're made of lots of carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, iron, and other elements that had to be formed through stars. So anything that we see here on Earth that's not hydrogen or helium had to have gone through a star first to have formed. So the things are continually changing. So what makes up our sun was once part of another star. And eventually some of that sun, the material of the sun will be pushed out into space and will form another generation of stars. So essentially things go through a cycle. There is a cycle that we look at where what we see is a molecular cloud today forms into a star. That star goes through its life, which we'll be going through in a couple of chapters. We'll actually talk about the whole life cycle. But it goes through its life. It ejects material back, some of that material back out into space. But what it sends out into space is not the same as what made it. Over that lifespan, it's taken things. It's converted things like hydrogen into helium. So it's enriched the amount of helium a little bit. But it's also made things like carbon, silicon, oxygen, iron, things that we need for life here on Earth. And those are all part of this cycle that we look at. And it goes around and around again. So this goes through each generation of stars forming from the next generation. Now for something like our sun has a lifespan of about 10 billion years. It hasn't had time to go through a complete cycle yet. For the most part this applies to the really high mass stars, the really big stars. The bigger the mass of a star, the quicker it goes through its life. So a star that is super, that like our sun, takes 10 billion years. Well, stars like our sun have not really had a chance to go through their whole life in the history of our galaxy. Because our galaxy is about 10 billion years old. So even stars like our sun that formed at the very beginning of our galaxy are just reaching the end of their lives. But a really massive star, something 100 times the mass of our sun, getting that upper limit, they only live a few million years. So they're gone. Any that formed 10 billion years ago, right? if they only live a few million years, they're all gone. They exploded. They expelled material back out into the interstellar medium. 
to form the next generation of stars. You can get lots of, if you say a million years just to make it easy, right? You've got what? A thousand millions in a billion. So every billion years you could go through a thousand life cycles of that, st- that type of star. In 10 billion years, make it 10 more times. You can go through 10,000 life cycles. That's a lot of time to build up the material. So our sun doesn't do a whole lot to help this enriching stars like our sun. It's the really massive stars that do a lot of this material and actually build up the heavier elements that we see in stars. So when we look at their life cycles, and we're going to go through a very uh, quick formation here, but the stars form from that cool gas and cool dust out in space. That's where the stars are actually forming, and we'll look at that uh, coming up here in just a little bit, how they actually form. So you have cool dust, cool gas, it condenses to form denser objects, and will actually form things like stars and planets. Once the, stars, once the star forms, it takes the light elements and creates them into heavier ones through what we call nuclear fusion. Right? We looked at this with the sun, proton-proton chain, all of that fun stuff. Well, that's what other stars do as well. We take the light elements and we convert hydrogen into helium. Now, we didn't go through the rest of the stages. We'll be looking at those in a little bit. But hydrogen to helium is the primary one we talked about for the sun. But there are also others that can occur later on. Once you build up a lot of helium, you can actually fuse helium into carbon at a high enough temperature. So stars also make all of the carbon through a very similar process to what we had with the proton-proton chain, combining four protons in a roundabout pattern to make a helium nucleus. Well, you can take four, three of these helium nuclei, combine them together, and make a carbon nucleus. You can add another one, you can add more to make it uh, oxygen, you can add another one to make it an oxygen nucleus. And you can work your way up through the elements. So and in these more massive stars, you can actually build things like carbon, oxygen, sulfur, silicon as you work your way up the periodic table. And they can build heavier and heavier elements. The the stars that are doing this are the really massive ones and they are the ones that will blow up at the end of their lives and that will send a lot of this material out into the galaxy. So this is what will form the next generation of stars. How do we get this out there? Supernovae is a primary way. That's an exploding star. Our sun won't explode. It's not massive enough to be able to get to the point where it will explode. But it will form what we call a planetary nebula, which means that the outer layers of it will be expelled out into space. And they'll be enriched a little bit. So it'll be sending some material back out into space. But most of of what the sun forms in terms of helium and carbon are going to be locked up in the core forever. It takes a lot of material to get expelled out. Stellar winds, you can send a little bit out as well. But what it means is that each time a star goes through this and a new generation of stars begins to form, they have a little bit more metal than the previous ones. And again, astronomers, metal, anything that's not hydrogen or helium. So you have hydrogen, helium, and you have metals. Everything else, elements three through whatever in the periodic table, are all metals. Doesn't matter whether we're looking at gases like oxygen or liquids like mercury. They're all metals to an astronomer. Anything else is metal. But each one will be enriched. We'll have more and more metals. The first stars to form would have only formed from hydrogen and helium. There would have been no metallic materials. Nothing metals. 
No carbon, no oxygen, no silicon, no iron. That means that those early generations of stars wouldn't have planets like ours. Right? How do you form an Earth if you don't have any silicon or iron or oxygen or nitrogen or carbon, things that make us up? So the very earliest generations of stars would not have had this. But after thousands and thousands of generations of those most massive stars, the metal content got enriched. Now it's just a fraction, a few percent. Stars can range from well less than, less than a percent to maybe a couple of percent of the heavier elements. Those are the ones that now have a little bit of material left over and can actually form planets like ours. So if we want to look at this uh, recycling process, I have a chart here to kind of show it. You know, what is the stellar life cycle like? Well, we start off with a molecular cloud, thing like Orion, where, where stars are forming right now. And that will form into a cluster of stars. And then what can happen to those stars? We split up here as to the various cycles that can occur. So that can actually form different sizes of stars from things that are brown dwarfs that don't make a star to stars like our sun to really massive stars. There's actually a whole big range. We've just broken it down into three classes. So these are pretty much locked up. Any material that forms into a brown dwarf just sits there because the brown dwarf will never go through any kind of uh, life evolution. Stars like our sun, low mass stars, and then there's higher mass stars. A star like our sun will become a red giant, expel outer layers, and then end up with the core. But the outer layers here is where we're actually sending material back out into space. There are some situations where a star like the sun can explode as a certain type of supernova. Not for our sun. Our sun has no chance of doing that, absolutely zero. So it will never happen for our sun because, first of all, it requires a binary system. It requires two stars, and our star is kind of all by itself. And it requires a star that's a little more massive than the sun. You have to have more material left over in the core. We'll talk about these in more detail in later chapters. But I, the main idea now is just that there is stars go through their lives and they expel material back out into space, whether it's through a planetary nebula, supernova explosions, which can occur for the more massive stars, and that expels the material back out into space. But that's not the end. And what's not really shown on here is that you take the material from these supernova remnants and it comes back here. And the planetary nebula material comes back here and another more supernova. They all come back and form the next generation of molecular clouds. So the next generation of stars will do the same thing. They'll have a little bit more metal. So they'll go through the whole process again and again. And as you do that, again, not just once, not twice, but when you do this hundreds and thousands of times, you slowly build up those percentages from essentially zero to at least a couple of percent, enough to be able to make stars and planets like we see today. So kind of putting this together here, there's the smaller version of this. But what we're doing is we're constantly expelling material into space by dying stars. So stars go through their lives as they die. They send material back out into space to enrich the next generation. They trap some of the material is trapped and stays there. Our sun will leave you know, half to two-thirds of its material will remain in its core and is there permanently and will remain there forever. But the other third or third or half will be expelled out into space. 
and will go back to form another generation of stars billions of years from now. Again, this is the slow portion of it is stars like the Sun. The faster one is the one up here with the higher mass stars. That goes a lot faster. So now we can form stars of, with things that have small amounts of iron, small amounts of silicon. And the leftovers from that can then form planets like our Earth. So if we're looking for life out in, this, out in the universe, we want to look at stars not that form very early on, even if they're really great and they have a planet there that's really just at the right location to have the right for temperatures for water, because it wouldn't have enough heavy elements. And again, heavy elements, anything other than hydrogen or helium. Not just talking about things like lead and uranium that we think ordinary think of as heavy elements, but it wouldn't have anything there. So that planet wouldn't have any carbon. Wouldn't have any oxygen. Well, that makes it hard to make life without carbon or oxygen for water. You know, can you make something living out of just hydrogen and helium? Maybe. Got a good imagination? I can't come up with it off the top of my head how you could possibly do that. Doesn't mean it can't be done, but just means that it's very difficult. So it was the later stars that started to form billions of years later that are the ones like our sun that are possible to have life. So again, the cycle here is really that everything that we see comes from the stars. Everything that we're made up of, right? Iron. Uh, what else you have? You have iron, you have phosphorus, you have uh, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, all of those elements that are in your body all come from this type of process and are expelled back out into space through the end state of star stellar lives. And that's what we'll be looking at up in chapter 20, a little bit more in chapter 22 when we kind of go through the whole life cycle of the different types of stars. So the other thing we want to look at is, you know, where did water come from on the Earth? One of the problems with water on the Earth is that we're too close to the sun. There shouldn't have been a lot of water that formed here. At this distance from the sun, we shouldn't have had as much water. So one of the things that there's a couple different ways that water could have come from. So there are thoughts depending on whether the, we're, we're exactly in the solar system the Earth formed, that it could have formed in dust grains. Remember those dust grains had a lot of water? Those could have come in and part of the things that formed the Earth. And depending on what the exact temperatures of the nebula were, that's one possibility that they became incorporated in the gas cloud that would form the solar system. Some of this could have formed Earth. As the Earth melted, the water would rise to the surface. So you could get some small amounts of water that would come from this process. The other thing that we look at is that water could have come from asteroids or comets within our solar system. If we think it was too hot in the inner solar system for a lot of water to form, this is a good bet. Because things could have formed outer in, in the outer solar system where it was a lot cooler. Things like ice, yeah, that's easy to form out there. You can form things like ice out at the distances of Jupiter and Saturn and the outer planets. You can form ices there and then get them thrown into the inter inner solar system. We know we are constantly bombarded and it would not be impossible for a lot of the water from Earth that, that is on Earth today to have come from outside of Earth in the first place. To have actually come from the outer part of the solar system and then built up here on Earth. 
In reality, we don't have very much water here on Earth, no matter what we talk about being the water planet. We really have only a very thin layer of water. Right? If you peel off the outer little skin layer, you know, th thinner than the skin of an apple, that's where all the water is on Earth. You can go down to only a few miles, but the Earth goes thousands of miles down to the core. So most of that is completely dry. So the Earth does look like it has a lot of water, but it's all concentrated on the surface. If we look in the outer solar system, and I have a section to come back to to talk about the planets a little bit later on, we'll see that there's more water on a lot of the moons in the outer solar system than there is on the entire Earth. So there's a lot, of more, lot more water when we get in the outer part of the solar system than there is here on Earth. All right. So other thing we see here as we finish up this chapter is that when we look at our galaxy, we have actually bubbles of material. When we actually look at the X-ray emission, remember X-ray is tracking the really high energies. Really high energy, really high temperatures. We actually get bubbles of material around many of these stars, meaning that the density around our sun is a lower area. And it's a lower density area, so there's actually bubbles that have occurred. We think that a lot of these occur because of really strong stellar winds. Not a little solar wind like our suns, that wouldn't do anything like this. But if you had massive stars that had formed at some point, they could have incredibly strong stellar winds which could clear out the material. So this bubble is essentially an area of much lower density where the interstellar medium has a lot lower material. And these are mappings of the, of the material that we see where those lower density areas are. A supernova would be another way to do this. When the star explodes, it just expels all that material out. Right? We might see a nice little remnant from it for a while. But over millions of years, it expands out into space and it kind of cleans out everything around it. So it might form some of these bubbles, but it's one of the things that we actually see. And this is what we call the local bubble because it's one that's right by our sun, but it's not the only one that we can detect. We can detect ones over here. We can detect other ones over here. And they probably change over time as well as the material expands out. They condense, they merge together, and eventually they become too weak to really hold anything out and they'll eventually uh, start to build up densities of material again over time. But these are regions where the density is much lower. And if you remember from last time, the density in the interstellar medium was really low to start off with. Here in these bubbles, it's even lower. So just one other thing that's kind of a new thing that uh, astronomers are studying in terms of these bubbles that we're actually finding. So finishing up this chapter, again, the interstellar medium is changing. The concentrations, the amount of elements that we see today are not what we saw 10 billion years ago when the galaxy formed. So they change. It takes a long time for this. It takes millions of years for even the largest stars to go through their lives. But millions of years, while long to us, is not long in terms of our galaxy. You've been able to go through 10,000 life cycles of a million year star in the life of the galaxy. That's a lot of time for stars to have been able to form and to recycle this material to build new generations of stars. And really that's where you know, we come from. Everything that's in our bodies, if it's not hydrogen or helium, and we have a lot of hydrogen and water in our bodies, but the carbons, 
the oxygen, the iron, all had to come from these stars and through this type of process. And we'll go through it in a little bit more detail coming up. So, chapter 20. Question? Yes? And we'll be going over in chapter 2, but the quick answer, it won't explode, but it's, uh, it will grow in size. So eventually the sun, which is so nice and tiny right now, will grow and will engulf Mercury, Venus, Earth. It will get that large, so it will actually incorporate all of those, so we will eventually be part of the sun. You've got about 5 billion years to wait, so it's not going to happen in the near future. It's not going to affect exam 3 or the final exam, you know, it won't do any of that. But it will get that large. Now explosion, no, it won't explode. But eventually when those layers get so big, they become unstable. And it will push those outer layers out into space. So it will eventually destroy much of the solar system. Because it will get that hot, it will you know, vaporize. Mercury will be completely vaporized and become part of the sun. So will Venus, so will Earth, probably Mars as well. Maybe Mars as well you know, would get so hot that it would actually be you know, uninhabitable. Maybe at that point things in the outer solar system would be. But, yeah. Good. Others? Yeah, question? <laughs> sure it won't take out the final? Yeah. <laughs> Unless there's something we really don't understand. Come on, if you're going through that far, you don't want it to take out right at the final, right? <laughs> Kind of like back in 2012, right? I told everybody, sorry, December 21st, 2012 is after the final exam. So you don't have to worry about the end of the world. You've got to still take the final exam first. All right. So let's go ahead and get started on chapter 21, which looks at, there it goes, formation of stars. The first section looks at formation of stars. The second two jump away from that and actually look at planets. So we want to get a chance to talk about planets outside our solar system, which is something relatively new. You know, when I was an undergraduate student, going back 30 years ago, we didn't know of any planets outside the solar system. There were none. We knew of nine planets at the time, Mercury through Pluto. Um, at the, that time, you know, Pluto since, of course, changed. But uh, that's all we knew of, for sure. Now we know of a lot more. So first I want to talk about how stars form, but then we want to use that to look at between today and then probably heading, covering, carrying over till Thursday a little bit. You know, what about planets outside of our solar system? So the first thing we want to look at is how stars, how stars form. So just kind of summarizing, because I use this for um, my 103 class, my planetary class too, because it talks about exoplanets. This is kind of a summary of what we've gone through over the last couple chapters, because they don't cover all the other chapters about the stars, except for the sun. So some of the basics. Uh, main sequence stars. Stars like our sun produce energy through nuclear fusion, fusing hydrogen into helium. 600 million tons every second. Again, lot. Sounds like a lot of material. But in terms of the mass of the sun, you won't even notice that. You won't even notice that change over 10 billion years. Um, stars come in a range of masses, about 0.08. Sometimes you'll see 0 0.075, it's just rounding off numbers, uh, which makes it a brown dwarf. Anything below that is a brown dwarf. Up to about 100 solar masses, about the most mass of a star can be. So there's a range there. 
where stars can occur. You can't have a star that's a thousand times the mass of the sun. It's simply not possible to get something that massive. It would rip itself apart. Anything lower than this is not a star because it's not fusing hydrogen into helium. It doesn't meet our definition of being a star. In terms of these, the small mass ones, the lowest mass ones are by far the most common. The massive main sequence stars, right? Again, we've gone over this over the last couple chapters. They're the hottest and the brightest stars. The low mass main sequence stars are the coolest and the faintest. And a galaxy like our Milky Way has lots of gas and dust. We just looked at that in terms of the interstellar medium. And it's got enough to make many billions and billions of stars. So not just a few stars, but it's still forming stars today. It formed some stars 10 billion years ago. Some of those are still around. Some that live that long are still around. It formed stars 5 billion years ago, like our sun. It's still going strong. It's forming stars today. So there are some stars that are still forming currently within our galaxy. Now that depends on the type of galaxy. There are different types of galaxies. Ours is one that is forming galaxies because it has an interstellar medium. It has gas. It has dust. But when we look at some of these regions, like the Orion region, right? this is the constellation of Orion. If you look at Orion at early morning uh, right now, you have four bright stars outlining the body. You've got the three in the belt. And you have the sword hanging down there. These are relatively young stars. The stars in the belt of Orion are only about five million years old. There are five million. Our sun is a thousand times older, five billion years old. So yes, they're five million years old, and that's old. But compared to our sun, which is not you know, an ancient star by any uh, stretch, they're very, very young. The stars in the sword are even younger, going down here. Those are less than a million years old. So those are even younger. And the stars actually in the Orion Nebula here, which if you look at is kind of this middle star in the sword. There's three stars going down here, one up above, one down below. And the middle one that you you can see sometimes as a star is actually the Orion Nebula, which looks something like this. There is visible light. But if we try looking at it in the infrared, we can kind of blot out a lot of that dust, get rid of a lot of it. And we can see these very bright stars, these four stars we call the trapezium of Orion. These are only about 300,000 years old. So very, very young by comparison. right? Our Earth is 4.5 billion years old. These formed in the last couple hundred thousand years. These are extremely young stars and extremely massive. And the biggest one of them, probably close to that 100 solar mass limit, is really what causes the entire nebula to glow. That one star puts out most of the ultraviolet radiation that gives us the Orion Nebula. Now these are the type of stars that don't live very long. So if this one only lives a couple billion years, it's still relatively early on in its life. It's only 300,000 years old. So it still has you know, another million or so years to actually live before it, it explodes as a supernova. Eventually, it probably will do so. It will probably explode. But again, what we're looking at is the range of ages. Some of those stars are forming recently. Some of them formed a little longer ago. It's an ongoing process. We tend to look at the brightest stars. They're the ones that stand out in a region. However, 
there's actually thousands of stars that are forming in this area and it'll eventually be a nice cluster, a nice grouping of thousands of stars that will be present in Orion. If we could come back in a couple million years, we'd see a nice cluster of stars there. A few of them might, have, might be gone, a few of these more massive ones will be gone, won't live that long. But most of the stars that form, remember the lower mass ones form easier, so there will be a lot more of those that form. So it's an ongoing process, the star formation. It doesn't just form like even within Orion, things don't form all at once. They formed you know, five million years ago, a million years ago, and the central ones a couple hundred thousand years ago. We can also see, and I think you can see a little bit of it here, this outer loop. You can see part of, almost part of a circle here. You, the rest of it gets faded out. That's probably from a star that exploded. That's probably the edges of a supernova remnant that expanded out into space. So we have some, you know, some even more massive stars that formed in the past. So once we form a we form start forming stars within the nebula, we have to be able to clear it out. Because when we look at most stars out there, most stars don't have lots of gas and dust around them. Now, all of the gas and dust that's near a star can't go into forming of it. Some of it's going to be left over. And there are a couple ways that we can clear out the uh, nebula. So strong stellar winds. Those young stars have really strong winds. They're pushing out material and particles and radiation. And that can clear out the nebula. So it can start to clear out those regions. Uh, the massive stars don't live very long. So a supernova explosion. Exp expands material out. And what that means is that both of those things can serve to compress other parts of the nebula. So here we have a cluster of stars that is, that is formed and it is clearing out the material around it. So material here looks relatively empty compared to what's over, further over. And those stellar winds, those supernova shock waves are pushing and compressing the material, continuing the process. So the stars finished forming here, they've settled down, but their, their results of what they're doing is pushing further into this cloud and starting more star formation. So it'll continue. Come back in a million years, these stars will be pretty much completely cleared out. You'll just see the stars. You'll see maybe another cluster of stars forming here and you'll see the shock waves starting to push further in, deeper and deeper into that cloud. So we want to look a little bit about how this process works. You know, what is the process of the birth of a star? How does a star form? Well, one of the problems is dust. Right? We went through dust in the interstellar medium. It's a big problem because we can't see through it. How do we see what's going on? And these stars that are forming are forming within those dust clouds. So if we try to look at them, they're invisible to us. So visible light does not penetrate them. We can't see them. If we put an optical telescope there, where's my picture? This one. If we try to look at Orion in the optical, that's hard to see what's going on there. We can't even see those stars very well. You can probably make, might be able to make them out in there. But when we look at it in the infrared, hey, we can actually see those stars and we can see the remnants of the dust. So we can use things like infrared radiation, radio radiation that can penetrate through and give us a peek into what's happening within that dust cloud. The initial collapse goes relatively quickly. 
Right? Astronomically speaking, thousands of years. I'm used to talking about millions and billions. Thousands of years is relatively short. So the initial collapse of a dust cloud into forming a star goes very quickly. It forms a dense core, so most of the material will actually collapse down to the core. We see that in our solar system. 99.8% of the mass of our solar system is the sun. Two-tenths of a percent is all the planets and the asteroids and the comets and all the other little debris that makes up our solar system. So when our sun, when our sun was forming, almost all of the material went down to the center, formed the sun. The little leftovers that didn't happened to form the planets and the other debris that's left around. So you form a dense, clumpy core in there. And once you do that, gravity starts to kick in. You pick up enough material there, its gravity gets larger and larger, so it's able to pull in more material. So as you start to build that core, here gravity then pulls everything in, and it will begin to, to fall in faster and faster. It will occur easier to pull in material from the poles. Right? If you imagine this is a big sphere, it's a lot easier to pull material in from up here than it is spinning material. Because it's spinning, it has what we call an angular momentum, an angular energy, that keeps it from collapsing in very well. So a lot of the material around the edges here forms into a disk around it, but doesn't collapse into the sun itself. The other material will collapse into it and form, most of it will collapse into it and form the star. And what this becomes for something like our sun, it becomes what we call a T Tauri star. T Tauri, that's a star in the constellation of Taurus. And the T means it's a variable star. It's just the naming, you don't have to go through details of this, but it's just the naming convention for variable stars. The first one is R, then S, then T. Yeah, I know. Don't, don't, we won't, we won't go, th to go through all the details. That's just how it happens, how they happen to start out naming them. So it's R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. Then it starts over with, not A, but I think it goes A, B, A, C, A, D. It's, it's a really, you know, but if you ever see the naming, when you have capital letters in front of some constellation name, it just means that it's a variable star. I'm not testing you on that, don't worry. But that's what, the, what that means. It just means that it was a variable star because it was changing in brightness. And it is one that we can then study and see. And what we're seeing now and now trying to understand them is we see that this is a very early stage star like our sun. This is a star like our sun which is still in the process of forming. So we're still seeing some of those very early formation. They have really strong stellar winds. So our sun probably went through this. Our sun went through a stage much like this. Very strong stellar wind cleared out the solar system. So why don't we have lots of hydrogen gas left over in the solar system that didn't form into the sun? We should have it spread out throughout the solar system. Well, it's all gone. It was cleared out by this really strong stellar wind. Then it settles down and is a little more calm. But at that stage, it can become really energetic. In fact, this would be the T Tauri star here would still have a disk around it. It hasn't formed planets yet. And it will actually spit out jets of material along the poles. So as material is spiraling in here, 
material will actually be expelled out along the poles. We'll see this kind of thing over and over again. This occurs quite often uh, astronomically, not just in stars, but we can look at it in things like you know, black holes and other objects, but also in galaxies. In very large galaxies, we get these large jets of material. So it's something that's very important, but when you stream out those material at very, very high speeds and it strikes leftover material behind it, out in space, it forms what we call a Herbigaro object, which is where those materials, it's not the star itself, it's actually where these things illuminate the interstellar medium. I think I had an image here of kind of where that would be. The star down there at the center is almost invisible. But as that material streams out, those jets of material stream out into space, you get one going one direction, one going the other direction. These bright lumps, clumps right here are where some of that is striking excess material. And that would be that Herbigaro object. We'd see these things actually glowing, not because they're stars, but because the jets being emitted by those stars are crashing into them. Previously, you would have had other ones back out here as the material continues to expand out into space. So these are things that are associated with those very young stars. Then, as they form, they will start to settle down. And you get rid of those jets. The jets diminish. The jets disappear as the star settles down. The winds will disappear and become something more normal, what we're used to with our sun, something very similar. So those will diminish. The disk will likely form planets, which we're going to be looking at in a little bit. And the stellar winds, the radiation pressure kind of clearing out the nebula. When those clear out, those clear out the light elements. Those clear out gases, little bits of dust, very small particles. They won't clear out a planet. A stellar wind isn't going to wipe out, push away a planet like the Earth. It's got enough mass, enough energy of its own that it can stand up to those little particles. Individual atoms, they can't. Individual molecules, they get pushed out and cleared out of the solar system. So the star will remain and any potential planetary system will remain as well. So when we track these on the HR diagram, right, told you we'd come back to this again. Remember HR diagram measures temperature versus luminosity and there's a main sequence which goes from the upper left down to the lower right hand side. The tracks that you see here are what different mass stars would do over time. How would, they, how would their luminosity change? How would their temperature change? So a 100 solar mass star would start off way up over here, and it would condense down. And then it, goes, it pretty much stays at the same brightness, but gets hotter and hotter and hotter as it collapses. Other stars like our sun right here don't really get a whole lot brighter. They come down, they get a little bit a little bit cooler, but their brightness dra changes drastically. Their brightness would have been much brighter up here, a thousand times the brightness of the sun, till it gets down to the brightness of the sun when it reaches. So depending on what the mass is, the tracks that it will follow, the process that it will go through in forming, is slightly different. They're a little bit closer here than they are at the end states that we'll look in the next chapter. So typically, if we want to look at things, we're, again, we're looking at how the temperature and luminosity are changing. It's nothing that star isn't moving around. It's not like it moving or moves around the HR diagram. It's not moving around space. All it means when we're doing that is that the temperature is changing. So if the temperature changes, its position on the HR diagram would change. 
If its luminosity changes, its position up and down would change. And, but in general, for most stars, the surface temperature will increase a little bit between a lot, a little bit for some of these stars or a lot for other stars, and the luminosity will decrease to some extent. Right? It was a little bit brighter here, it dropped down and then kind of settled over. But it dropped a little bit from where it started to where it ends up, luminosity dropped a tiny bit. Again, the amount depends on the mass of the star. A very massive star is going to end up over here in the upper left hand side, a very low mass star down on the lower right here. As it's doing this, this is all the star collapsing. So you have this big cloud of gas, it slowly gets bigger and bigger and denser. And this is what is happening as the star moves here. It's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. That's why they have a tendency to be moving down diagonally. If you remember from our HR diagram, smallest stars were down here, biggest stars were up here. So as you move down diagonally, the star will get smaller as you move downward. So the star is collapsing. It was a real big cloud of gas and dust. You're not changing the mass, but you're pushing it down closer and closer and closer together over time. And as it does that, the core will heat up. So here you're getting a hotter core, a hotter core, a hotter core, and eventually it will reach the main sequence. All that means is that the core got hot enough for hydrogen to start fusing. So once hydrogen starts fusing, everything becomes in a state of balance. The star was collapsing. It's condensing down, getting smaller and smaller and smaller because there's no energy source. So we have gravity pulling things down and we have nothing pushing things out. So it collapses, gets smaller. Eventually you ignite the nuclear fusion. Boom, now you have a pressure pushing outward and the star reaches a state of balance. That's when it reaches the main sequence here. It's reached a state of balance and it's going to stay there for between a few million years if you're up here or maybe many billions or even trillions of years if it's way down here. It will remain in a state of balance for those. Um, some of the stars will never ignite nuclear reactions. So if the mass is less than 0.075, and again I've given that as 0.075 or 0.08 interchangeably, just rounding off the number, uh, nuclear reactions will never begin. So if you get something a little smaller than this, this is a tenth of a solar mass, you still become a star, but a little lower you actually will become a brown dwarf star where nuclear reactions will never begin and all of the material is just tied up there. So finishing up, uh, what we want to look at here is star formation begins in that cool molecular cloud. So cooler area in space, that's material. If it's too hot, material's moving too fast, it can't start to collapse under gravity. Cooler material isn't moving as fast, is able to condense down into uh, a more dense object. We form those disks and jets of material. That disk can become planets, which we'll look at next time. And the disks of material can actually give us some illumination, can show us where this star is actually forming. We use the HR diagram, you'll see that, not in the rest of this chapter, but in the next chapter you'll see a number of HR diagrams. We use that to study how the stars form and study the stages. How do they move on the HR diagram? How does their temperature change? How does their luminosity change? And what does that mean as they're moving around different areas? So when we come to chapter 22, next week, then we will look at that in much more detail as to how we move those around. 
I'm going to go ahead and stop there because the next two sections are all on how planets form in that. And instead of me getting 10 minutes into it, I'll just do that all together on Thursday with your, with your lab. And that way I can do a lab. I, have a, I think I have a nice lab we can do on uh, extrasolar planets as well. Questions? Otherwise, have a good rest of the day and I'll see you Thursday.